Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Mission Log Supplemental, number 58, the one with David C. Fine. a supplemental episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. A few weeks ago, we had the pleasure of meeting David C. Fine, the producer of Star Trek The Motion Picture, the director's edition. David worked with director Robert Wise in order to bring to the public the final, correct version of this film, which was released on DVD in 2001. David joined us in Sansar in our virtual reality museum called the Roddenberry Nexus, In there, he shared with us a number of behind-the-scenes stories, Easter eggs, and a few tidbits about the efforts to release a 4K version theatrically and on home video. Keep in mind that because this is a recording from VR, you'll occasionally hear other people talking and some sound effects. It's a very casual environment. We've edited out a few spots where the technology was misbehaving, but left the bulk of the conversation intact. We pick up the chat right when David is telling us about the gold Starfleet medallion he's wearing, both virtually and in real life, given to him by Robert Wise. Daisy uh, is a developer who made the CG version of this real-life medallion that David is wearing. So you can kind of see it right there in the middle of his chest. And get up super close and go, oh, hey, what's that? And for the sake of, of, of this, I am wearing the actual one right now. So, it, 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 oh, <laughs> so, so tell us the story of that and why you're wearing it. Um, I noticed it while we were doing the project, just that there was, that, that Robert Wise, while he was filming the film, was wearing one of these. And we did the, uh, when we, let me get a step back. Is everybody familiar with the director's edition? I'd assume so, but does everyone know? I mean, it's crazy that there's people who don't know about it because <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's incredible to me, but it's also been so many years since that DVD release, and I should probably get that out of the way. The uh, the reason we did it on DVD originally is that that's the that's the the revenue stream that the studio had at the time is that money was made with DVD releases. So when it came time to do the film, they said, "Well, would you do it on on standard definition?" Because it didn't make any sense to them to do it on film because revivals weren't happening. So they said, "Let's do it in standard definition." And of course, that meant there couldn't be a high def, there couldn't be a film. But our goal was always to make it in film. That was what the the charter was for Bob. That was the whole point of doing the whole project. Because stepping back a little further, and I guess I'm doing this whole speech about the starting. <laughs> stepping back a little further, when they made the film in 1979, there were problems with the visual effects, and there were uh, competing scripts that were going on between Harold uh, Livingston and and Gene. That they even had script changes coming in by hour as opposed to day but there were so many issues about shooting it and then the visual effects there were severe problems with the effects house that they originally had hired didn't deliver any of the effects because they just couldn't in time and they realized you know we need more time and that these guys aren't going to be able to do it so they went back to the studio and said hey guys we need time to finish this movie we need to push the schedule back and the studio had pre-booked it all over the world to have you know especially the US for the US release so they said we don't care if there's a black leader in the film it has to go out and it became this mad rush to finish the film so what ended up occurring was uh, Robert Wise the editor and the editor um, which I'm sad I'm blanking on his name but anyway they sat down and they also were required to release a hun- to finish a 130 minute movie so uh 
they didn't have effects effects in, and they stripped the film of whatever extra story that they could possibly pull because they didn't know the running time. They were literally taking effect shots as they came in and splicing them into the movie from first frame to last frame of the film, of each piece that came in, to put together some type of uh, film that would be releasable. Uh, by the time the, the they had to leave for the premiere in Washington, D.C., the film had to be essentially abandoned. They had to basically just stop and say, okay, it's now absolutely the furthest we could wait. Um, Robert Wise had the film uh, uh, developed for, the, first, for the, the last reel that he needed, and they handed it to him, and he jumped on an airplane to fly to Washington, D.C. with it literally still wet in the can. Usually when there's a film that's wet, it's a term, but this was literally dripping in the can. And slept with it, slept with it underneath his bed to bring it to the premiere the next day. They screened it, and there were so many people who were just, oh, my God, you know, it's... it's it's a film, you can follow it, but it's, it's, it was not finished. And there were memos we found even at the time where they were saying that, you know, the international release isn't happening, can we go back and fix this? And the studio was saying, no, it would show that you didn't have a lot of faith in the film. And it's the sheer talent of Robert Wise and the filmmakers, and, you know, when they brought in Doug Trumbull and John Dykstra, these legends of the industry... Uh, of course, John Dykstra did the effects for Star Wars, and Doug Trumbull did the effects for 2001 Space Odyssey and Close Encounters. You know, it's no question that these are going to be amazing effects shots. But again, putting them from first to last shot meant that there was no fine-tuning at all. And what happened? You ended up with a film where there was almost no sound on the bridge other than a rumble. And if you remember classic Star Trek, there's always sound. It's alive. And when we, what we had, and then for the television version, they took some of those those scenes with characters and the whole point of the movie, which is Spock crying on the on the bridge, and put those back into the film. But they were still these unfinished pieces. So Robert Wise was uh, uh, frustrated because he never had a film that got out of hand for him ever. He's always had a great time, and it's always been the, a, a great experience. But this was the one that got away, and he practically didn't make any more movies for years until he made one or two more in his career. And he was making a movie every year. I mean, this is the director of uh, The Sound of Music and West Side Story and The Day the Earth Stood Still and uh, The Andromeda Strain. And, I mean, a legend. Um, and, you know, as I was even pointing out to Paramount recently, we're talking about going back and doing this and finally film quality so it can forever be available. And, you know, the director's edition is Bob and my crew coming back and we're, we're going to sit down and we, we went through and fine-tuned the film. And there's a thousand edits in the picture because, as I said, there were, there were visual effect shots that were put into the film from first to last frame. If you look at the theatrical version of the film and you're looking at the dry dock sequence, there's some places in there that just don't feel right and you might not know why. The reason why is if you see, there's uh, there's... The, sh the shot will start, but there'll be two ships off in the distance that haven't started moving for a few frames. Mm -hmm. So it'll cut in, and then something will start moving. And it's jarring, and it, it makes it uncomfortable to watch. And without the sound effects, it leaves you without it being compelling in some ways, and without the fine-tuning of the story. So my favorite review, and it took me a little while to think about this, I was thrilled when the director's edition came out, it received great reviews, but it wasn't pushed as hard as it should have been for people to know what it was um, everywhere. So the, that's why they released uh, the theatrical version over and over again, because they, were, you know, they didn't realize that, there's, that this was the finished film, and now we're talking about getting it finished. So, um, but my favorite review had me thinking, because it didn't make sense at first, which is, you even made the uniforms better. <laughs> and the, I finally realized what they meant was, why the uniforms, while there's a lot of argument about them themselves, they were so scrutinized because you were sitting in a room without any sound and your long sequences that weren't tightened and to be a compelling story that you had nothing but the opportunity to sit there and look at the uniforms mm. for a long time. Mm. So you started analyzing everything that was around and... Now, when you watch the director's edition, it flows so well 
that you don't notice the uniforms as much. That's what I, what I finally figured out they were talking about. Nice. And now you can get the director's edition if you buy motion picture on iTunes or Amazon. You buy the theatrical, which I call the theatrical assembly, because it really isn't the finished film. <laughs> you, can, you can get the standard definition uh, finished film uh, for free with it. That's what oh. I think they include as an extra. So we're trying to make change that so that you have the uh, 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 the full 4K uh, finished version of it. And as far as we were concerned, that was a demonstration to the studio and a guide for what this is, because the resolution is dramatically improved, and there were a few little things that Bob still wanted a little more of, and we did it for such a low res, and now we're many times over in resolution that getting a chance to go back and redo those hundred visual effects will be phenomenal. It'll look yeah. so much so different, but there'll also be a new experience because uh, La La Land Records put out the soundtrack. We have a three CD set that came out, which is amazing. Um, but the mix is fantastic, and at that time, we prepared the music to put it in the director's edition. So if you nice. like the soundtrack album, that's what the quality of the music will be when we get to the when we nice. do it, along with the Dolby Atmos mix, which would be nice. Cool. Which brings me all the way back to. I can't pick it up. I was picking up my own and showing it. <laughs> the, um, <laughs> I do know VR, but <laughs> this. Um, so, uh, as I said, Robert Wise was wearing this every single day of production. And once we were finished with the film and we released it, and he was just ecstatic because he wouldn't talk to us for years about this. And for the first time ever, I saw a genuine smile that he was happy with this film that he and his wife, Millicent, who's, by the way, in the rec deck scene, uh, shortest woman in the front row, um, she, I didn't call you, no, anyway, um, they sat me down one day and said, you know, you really helped finish some unfinished business with me, and it really touches my heart, and I want you to have this. And they explained to me that, because I didn't know any of this, didn't know the story, this is before our premiere. They explained to me that this was actually a gift from Gene Roddenberry to Robert Wise because he was so thrilled that Bob was on board to do the film. It's my understanding, and I think I heard this from Majel, was that um, the reason that Bob was in the film was brought on, uh, or one of the reasons why Gene was so happy, was that Gene's favorite film was The Day the Earth Stood Still. So to get Robert Wise, his favorite director of all time, to do his movie, it just elevated everything, and he was so thrilled to have Bob on board. So he made this up for Bob, solid gold with real jewels. And uh, if, uh, the story I've heard is that Gene is the only other one that has a that had a, a, a gold one with the jewels, and then they did silver ones for the actors, and other people have had bronze ones. But the, the silver and bronze did not have the, the, the jewels in it. So he told me any time that I'm representing the film or him, wear this. Because, number one, anybody who was on the film would remember it as, this is what Bob wore, and he wanted the film respected, and he wanted it appreciated, and hopefully that would come through with this. And he said, no matter what, I'll, I'll kind of be with you, and it means a lot to me, because I miss him, and I stayed with him until he passed. Every day, you know, I, I worked with him, and it was, he's my mentor, and I, I miss him every day. So we're really grateful that uh, oh, is Daisy still here? Hi, yeah, there she is. Yeah, there, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so thank you again for being able to turn that around so fast and in such amazing job. Perfect. Detail. I can't do that with yeah. my hand here. I don't believe I can. Can I do it here? Uh, no, it's a it's a command. That, I didn't have a hand. Uh, have command. Yeah. 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 Oh, I will close this out with something I don't think I've ever said publicly before, but I've certainly said it privately. Bob also had me promise that the director's edition will be finished in 4K, or at least to film res, that it is, it will be done. And I told the studio, you know, yeah, we're going to make this happen. It's going to happen. We've been having great talks with them. They, they've been very positive. There's, you know, issues to still be worked out. But uh, I told Bob, you know, I will not give up until it is. Because any time that you see anything less, that's not the film that he wanted to be remembered for. He wanted to be remembered for a finished movie. And you all deserve it. We deserve a, good, a great movie. A movie that we all enjoy. And that's what, you know, I hope we, we produced and put together.
We'll get right back to our conversation with David C. Fine in a moment, but first a word from Mint Mobile. If you're still using one of the big wireless providers, have you asked yourself what you're paying for? Well, between expensive retail stores, inflated prices, and hidden fees, you're probably being taken advantage of because they know that you'll pay. That's where Mint Mobile comes in. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage that you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything is done online. Mint Mobile saves on retail locations and overhead, then passes those savings directly to you. Now, I've been using Mint Mobile for a while now, and it's very impressive. Surfing the web, streaming music, even video, it all works the way you'd expect, and for a lot less money per month. Now, Mint Mobile makes it easy to cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text. I was even happy to see that they've recently added unlimited calling to Mexico and Canada, included in that low monthly fee. And with Mint Mobile, you're only paying for the amount of data that you need. Choose between plans with 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. Keep your phone, keep your number, and keep more of your money. To get your new wireless plan starting at 15 bucks a month, and to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash missionlog. That's mintmobile.com slash missionlog. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash missionlog. So, uh, does anybody have any questions? I, I'm thinking our next step is we'll probably go into the museum proper and uh, take a look at some of the art from TMP and especially the storyboards, because I know that David has some uh, insights and comments about those. Uh, but before we go or as we go in there, any questions or comments? I'm just kind of blown away. I hadn't realized that it was only the director's edition was only done as a DVD release. Well, yeah. under, also also understand that it, that it was done only as a DVD release at the time, but my instruction to everybody who was working on it, and this is where there's people are saying, well, the effects are only in standard definition. It can never be done. No, my everything from the, from the start of the project, the instruction was we are going to go to film. So whatever you do, do it from the, perspect, uh, the perspective of we're going to film. And I'll, I'll share another, another uh, interesting point of this. We also realized and recognized that we were making an epic movie. You know, Star Trek The Motion Picture is an epic film that belongs in theaters. It's huge. And um, personally, I always feel like uh, the Avid has been one of the curses to the film industry because everything that everyone's editing on is a little screen and your mind takes things in at a different speed when you're looking at uh, a television screen because it just goes so fast. Hello. <laughs> you get attention when you stand up. Um, that everything, everything, everything goes by so fast that your mind can take it in in a small screen. But when it's a big screen, you have to relax and let it let it unwind and let it just happen. So we were stationed in the Hager Building at Paramount, and in one of the offices, we put up a projector and we're projecting on a on a fourteen foot wall. And other editors were walking by saying, what the hell are you doing? And I said, we're editing an epic film. We need to be able to take it in at that speed and just be able to appreciate it that way and not lose the, we have to tighten it so much that it becomes a video. So that's where it's also important that we keep, I mean, like the new shot that we have going into towards the Vigor Island Complex with the little Enterprise it's just going along. You know, that's something that just would you'd never do that if you were doing it for TV, if you were doing it standing, leaving it standard. So we had all the effect shots and everything else designed to be uh, uh, reproduced, and we have all those setups. So we at least have a jump start when we, you know, in recreating the effects for this version. And this other version just served as a uh, as a reference and a guide to what we're doing. So I'm excited about the future. If you uh, if you get to go ahead with a 4K version is there anything from the dvd that you feel in that 19 years hasn't aged well or needs to be tweaked or i mean i, I know that you, you basically actually, have the template you know 
Well, when you consider that we produced the DVD with the focus that whatever we were doing at the time had to look 20 years previous to that. Yeah. And it was almost 18 years ago, which is shocking to me that yeah. it was that long ago that we were doing this. But we made it all look like it was back then. There's, Of course, there was a few things that we thought would look that, that, that should be updated here and there. Um, the, the building of the bricks, for instance, for something that bothered me in particular where there's the lights that are coming in the last pieces form, um, the, the frame rate isn't as high as it should have been. So we're mm. going to address that. There's a couple of fixes that I've already noticed that we would need to do it now to, the, to improve upon it. But understand, and I've explained this many times, if uh, it, it's not like uh, uh, simply a uh, uh, enlarging what was there. Because if I gave you a matchbox car and you didn't know what a car was, and I said, "Would you make this the size, you know, full size?" and I said, "That's ten feet long," you'd give me a matchbox car that's ten feet long, and it would look ridiculous compared to what a ship, what a, what a car would look like, mm. because you don't understand the intricacies of what that is. So it's the same thing with us redoing the effects. There's so much more information that we know that needs to be integrated into it so that when you see it in 4K, it's going to be so much more, so much more detail, so much more information, as opposed to just taking what was there and just making it bigger. Right. It doesn't work that way. Right. I like the interactive lighting. I can put you in the shade. That's great. <laughs> All right. Kind of cool. Um, anyway. Cool. Well, let's, uh, let's work our way into the main part of the museum. And, yeah, if anybody has questions or comments, let's uh, feel free to blurt them out. Ask me sometime, or if you want, I'll just repeat, just finish it now, about why the 4K will be amazingly different now than it ever could be previous. See, in a way, I'm thrilled that we waited. Did I say it now or should I just move on? Say it. Say okay. it. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a technology that's not nearly being appreciated out there, and it's something that I'm quite familiar with, and it's out there. It is out there everywhere, but no one's talking about what it really means. And it's Dolby Vision and HDR. Now, uh, I, I hope somebody's heard of HDR, which is high high uh, dynamic range imaging, which is where blacks can be really black and brights could be so bright that you have to cover your eyes. And it's all that range in between. And the thing is, is that movies, when they were shot, even the chemical process of, proje of projecting a movie, you could only see a certain range of brightness and color because you project it through a piece of film and, and uniformly the, the screen has to light up. It's the same thing as television. If you, were in, if you have all the lights off in your room and you left your television on, you see the rectangle. That's the darkest it can go. But with Dolby Vision TVs and HDR TVs and 4K now, they redefine what you can see to be dramatically brighter and, dr and dramatically darker and dramatically more colorful. The thing that I said is amazing that people don't realize is that, and this is where it blows my mind, for the last, you know, 50 years people have been saying, yes, but the movie's going to be better with this. They found out that the film that you photographed a movie on actually still has all of that information for the really bright spaces and the really dark spaces. And you transfer it into Dolby Vision or HDR, and you can see things that were actually recorded on the set in the actual brightness of reality that you never even knew about existing. So you can actually say, oh my God, we're going to have Star Trek The Motion Picture, and there's going to be more about, more that you'll, that, than you'll ever see before when you scan the negative and do these HDR passes. And for me, I get excited and giddy at the thought of the probe on the bridge because the, the actors are, are covering their eyes because it's so bright. So, so it's going to be like no one's ever seen before, and I'm just excited about every movie that's, that's like that. But I actually had a chance to speak to Robert Wise years ago. Um, Robert Wise and I, since a friend of mine discovered the extra information about the movies, that they had all that information on film, uh, we discussed the fact that it was um, possible to have all this extra information, and he was very much uh, for the idea of, if we can do it, let's present the film the best way it is and focus on telling the, the story more than, well, it's this format, that format. Always keep the focus on making the best film for you guys. And for us, we love it. Anyway, I got you know, one for you, David. You'll like this okay. one. I was 14 years old when the when the, the movie came out, and my mother, who claimed to be a Star Trek fan, took me to see the movie. And as we were leaving, she looks at me and she says, I'm confused. This guy. 
I've never Where's seen the her before. Where's Falcon? Where's Darth Vader? <laughs> I could have slapped her like she was expecting to see the Millennium Falcon come flying. It's that big circular. It's that big circular thing on the front of the. Yeah, I've never seen it before. Yeah, there you go. That's right. right. I was like, wrong universe, mom. Wrong universe. I got. I got a quick question. Asia times. I am looking for the voice. The only person I. I'm over here. Asian. I know that I interact with regularly. Oh, there you are. Okay. Hi. But she's not in the. Hello. Can you hear me? Oh, okay, great. Okay. Uh, my question is, in all the Star Trek franchises, who decides the hairstyles? Because I remember Kirk with the, with the pointy uh, sideburns. So who gets the last word on the on the sideburns? It's usually the director deciding the director. what's going to be at that time. What's really funny is that there's a um, oops, there's a photo that I love that's in one of the books that we uh, that we worked on um, the, the Star Trek magazine on motion picture. <clears throat> which I gave them <clears throat> a lot of the material that I originally created we originally created put on the disc didn't make it and um, one of the photos which has uh, uh, Kirk on the side holding his wrist communicator and talking I love this I love the photo because it was a test shot with with that old hairstyle and it always surprised me that no one really came said wow that's the old hairstyle so um is that the, the Gene box? Yeah, that's the, the box oh, okay. with the dated prototype. Uh, okay, the, I really yeah, do want to take this one home. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mentioned this to John earlier today, but I, I remember seeing this a long time ago uh, online, and I just said, I have to have one. Yeah. That way Gene can yell at us for what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to make it to the next room before we yeah, get Yeah, let's, uh, let's get into the next room. Can we, we can talk on the being released in the UK? I, can't, I don't know if I've seen it or not. Um, as I said, the, the, the uh, uh, on iTunes, you can buy the director's edition. Uh, <clears throat> you can buy the theatrical version, and they include the director's edition. Well, I think it's something I really want to the see. standard definition, but I assure you, you're going to have some amazing some backup. There'll be some the differences. Original, I've watched it a number of times, and I always fall asleep in the middle of the traveling through that cloud. And wake up when uh, ideas, they're under attack. On the... Well, we did, we did cut that down, so. Yeah. You know what little moment I love in motion picture? When Kirk first goes into the turbo shaft and runs his finger along the wall looking for the handle. Because it's his enterprise. Oh, that yeah. first shot where he just runs his finger along the wall. Yeah. You know, like pointing. And it's and then most people don't realize the little little glowing dot over here. The little glowing dot that's uh, showing where the turbo <laughs> shaft is supposed to go. Right. We're going to crash in a minute, I think. <laughs> uh, David, you mentioned the costumes, and obviously we have one of... Uh, one of the medical tunics over here from the motion picture. I, I love its simplicity. I never had a problem with the uh, costumes in that movie at all. I thought they were pretty cool. But, there were uh, so many costumes made up for this movie. Uh, so many. And I would say you've probably seen a, a fifth in every photo that you've ever seen or any piece of only a fifth of them. Wow. And I'm shocked that they haven't been showing up much in the other films. There we go. I'll just stand here. That yeah. <laughs> um, they haven't shown up in other projects. But, I mean, and then they tried every male-female costume on everybody else. I think I found a picture of a guy wearing Ilya's, Ilya's uh, uh, blouse um, in one. And there was other guys wearing uh, Kirk's uh, Admiral uniform, which I think is one of the best uniforms that they've made. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which I would have worn if we had a outfit of that here um but so many of the costumes it's it's wild i'll tell you a, a secret that we found recently when mccoy beamed up uh i was looking at some photo proofs and i found a proof that had mccoy uh, an alternate take that had mccoy beaming up and he was holding like a riding crop hmm. it's like why is he wearing where is he holding that that doesn't make any sense wow so it, but but they didn't use that they did something else yeah yeah there's a, there's a there's a number of things. I mean, Robert Wise never released a film without a uh, without doing a, uh, uh, an advanced preview screening, and this, as I said, was for the, the preview screening. You've been watching it for 20 years before we were finished. Yeah, that's what the preview yeah. screening was on this. So we we brought to the film 
uh, a better understanding of Star Trek than he had and also brought the 20 years of experience. And the, the magic of Robert Wise is that he knows to bring the right people in and trust them. And he trusted me and my team. And that's we brought a lot of Star Trek to uh, to this story. And I felt like we really brought Kirk back because he's a really angry guy in the mm-hmm. theatrical. And there's like a n- number of decisions that we've made that, you know, some people agree and don't agree. I've had people tell me that they hate the fact that we pulled uh, Shatner's line, uh, Kirk's line, when the transporter accident happens, which is, oh, my God. And the problem is, is that for 20 years, people were laughing at the line. That, you know, he says, oh, my God, because it happened. And people said, well, I miss laughing there. And I said, well, people just died. It was a bad laugh. It's the first thing that would have been cut out when you're doing a, screen, uh, a previous screening because you don't want people to laugh there. I'll tell you an interesting transporter room story. Um, that transporter accident, which is actually one of the most terrifying moments in Star Trek history, if you ask yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, that's not, the pl- that's not the way I want to go. You don't want to, you, you don't want to go through a transporter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, that one, yeah. And... Yeah. Um, the funny part about it, and really, you should. By the way, everyone should listen to the listen to the book on tape or read the new newly re-released Roddenberry uh, novelization of the movie. There's so much more about those characters. Hmm. Uh, one of the ones that died was Commander Sunak. If you missed that, the guy who was meeting mm-hmm. Vulcan that he was meeting with earlier, and because he became a Vulcan blob, that's why they needed a science officer. Right. In the film, because he was already saying he was going to meet him on board and he wanted to have it. So Decker had to be the science officer until Spock showed up. Yeah. Um, But one of the things that happened was I knew that being a fan of uh, a person who's into marketing plus also understands what guides me with films makes me really intrigued and interested is when you make a film um, like motion picture and we're going to do a change, the first question that, that I would always have is, yeah, you made a change to this film, but it's, you know, how is it different? How are we going to get communicate that the film's different right away? And I thought about that horrifying scene. I went to my sound team because we, we actually found bits of sound uh, material for reels that were finished but had never been put into the film because of time. So we actually ended up putting original sound effects in that had been made at the time but could not be placed. Hmm. But I also made my team, I said, I need the sound, I need, need you to do something. I need the transporter accident to be bumped up so much that it gives your your you know goosebumps and runs hair you know chills down your spine and uh, i said nails on the chalkboard just mm. when you listen to this now it should be terrifying and frightening and then i explained to them that there's there were two points in that number one it is terrifying and frightening and i think the way that i summed it up was i said imagine if you're you're somebody who's in the, the worst pain of your life and you don't have any way to scream and suddenly some part of you is there to let you scream. This horror, that's my, my, just some part of you comes together that you can finally utter some sound, what would it be? And that's kind of where we came out with, what we ended up with. And the point there was that PG had gone from the rating of movies that just were not frightening or just basic to mean kids' film. So Star Trek The Motion Picture was was rated uh, G, and now in today's world that means kids. And I wanted to make everyone recognize quickly and easily this was a different film and more intense. So when we were finished, uh, I asked the studio, and happily they did, send the film back in as a director's edition for re-rating. And they did. And what ended up happening was the unfinished theatrical version of the film the unfinished work print of the film, the, the assembly that was the theatrical version, is now unrated. Hmm. And the director's edition, which is the finished film, is rated PG. Hmm. And I thought anybody who knew the film, suddenly realizing that it's PG, would say, okay, there has to be enough for people to want to look at this. I mean, I, I want to look at this and say, what's, what could possibly be different? And I, you know, I, it, it's also compelling. You put somebody in a room and you, you show them a f- bunch of things and and not be animated and not tell fun stories, you're going to get overly bored. But if you're compelling, like the movie is now, much more than ever has before, um, you'll, uh, you know, you can be frightened and it could be something that would be rated a lot better. So I'm very happy about the rating and that's why now you might see where it says unrated and there should never be a G again. Yeah. 
Can, can you talk to us about, uh, are there scenes or moments uh, in the director's edition where you've got some pushback either from fans or at the time that you were putting it together where there were some tough calls or, or controversial choices? Well, um, there were scenes that were dropped that could have been in the film that uh, Bob just didn't feel like it feel should be in the film. And he made the call hmm. that, you know... Uh, well, I'm not going to make any statement about Bob and religion, but there's a point in the mm -hmm. film where there was a statement where we all make God in our own image, which was in the special longer version. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was just decided that it shouldn't really belong in the film. Mm -hmm. That particular uh, moment wasn't really necessary for it. Um, fan fan comments, I mean, another thing that, that people felt was that they felt that the, you know, in the rec deck scene when uh, Uhura... Uh, when, when Kirk yells at Uhura, you're off, second time. Yeah. And she had to be woken up to go over there. Actually, after some conversations, it was that Uhura's been through death with, with Kirk, has been through so many times that they would have been dead, that she is a, an excellent officer. He doesn't have to yell at her. He doesn't have to tell her twice. No matter what's happening, she'll be there and she'll respond. So yeah. some people felt that, it, well, it, it lightened the moment. Well, no, it actually hurt the character mm. because that character is so much more responsible than what would have been accepted. And it also helped him not come off, as I said, this angry admiral, but as this uh, uh, you know, captain who holds good command. Yeah. It's funny, too, because uh, motion picture, one of the things that, I, that, that we look at it today is that it really is a statement about being, you know, like the last statement, the human adventure is only beginning. Well, uh, it's just beginning. Um, where we are today is we walk around with technology. I mean, look, we could sit in a room and imagine if you sat in a room and could have virtual conversations from around the world. This is, te <laughs> this is technology. Yeah. Right. But yeah. without, without the human aspect of it, it would be cold if you walked up to somebody to this costume and hit a button and it, and it told you a story. It's not the same as what we bring to it. And in that way, I actually think the movie is more poignant today than it ever has been. Because V'ger is that machine just collecting knowledge. It's like right. this room. But to be able to be human, it, it's, it's fantastic. And that's where, I'm, where I believe that we're going to end up with uh, if it, 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 people really appreciating it more now than ever before. So, um, But uh, overall, I've, I'm, I'm thrilled that people really responded to to the director's edition. There were a number of things that, you know, they were sad, sad to hear a lot of computer voices go. Mm -hmm. Well, part of the charter was what, what, did, we, what did we learn over 20 years of, of previous screenings, meaning they've been out for 20 years. It's a really cold film. There's a lot of blue. So we did everything to warm it up by making human voices. And one of the things that, that, that warmed up classic Star Trek was there were always mumbles of different places on the Enterprise. You always knew something was going on because there was always some mumbling from some channel on the bridge when you're, when you're listening to, to make that alive. And we wanted to make sure that we kept doing, that we brought that to it. Um, I often tell people the first, the first change, other than the star field over the, over the, the overture, which was more so to do with people keep skipping it thinking that there's nothing there, so you need something, so we had the star field right. added. Um, was there was a conversation because the even the opening credits were very uh, uh, rushed. They were just white cards on a black background. <laughs> so we we made them color uh, a uh, a gold color and a little bit of effect with stars and such. But we remember we were we were debating green or uh, debating uh, blue or gold. You know, third season classic Star Trek, first season or just gold. And uh, Bob finally Bob finally came in and we showed it to him and he said, you know, go with the gold. It has balls. <laughs> so that was <laughs> nice. That was nice yeah. because also we were trying to really set a, set the gold standard. Everything, even this room where we're standing right now, short of the the original series, it all came from the success of that movie. Mm -hmm. And and even for adjusted dollars today, it's the second biggest Star Trek film of all of them. It's amazing that when you think about it, because it had such a bad reputation for being slow, and it, but it still did amazing uh, box office, and uh, you know that's that's something to appreciate for the for the studio about it, but also the talent and Jerry's score. I, mean, I love it. 
just really love it, and it meant well, so well, much to me. We wouldn't have had all the others, would we? I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. and it, it kind of it kind of elevated things. You know, I love classic Star Trek, and I love how everything looked, but so much was based upon the level of where they went with the motion picture and the designs. That is what elevated the fr- the franchise, so that any time that somebody would produce, you know, the next generation or anything else, many times they'd use the same sets, um, but they they produce something new. It it would, uh, uh, you know, it would be based on something that happened with motion picture. Did you? The Klingon, the Klingon cruiser bridge is is the torpedo room in Star Trek Two. Oh right, yeah, yeah. The big uh, spots you, you can see. You told me earlier about uh, an Easter egg that you dropped in. You dropped in the uh, Wilhelm scream. Uh, I, I hope that you can tell people about that. But then I'd also be curious if there are other Easter eggs or uh, or little details that maybe the audience has overlooked uh, since the director's edition first came out. So where were we? Uh, so we were talking about Easter eggs, Wilhelm scream. Oh, Details. Yeah, I asked, I asked if anybody was familiar with the Wilhelm scream, and no one put their hands up. So <laughs> I, I know the one you're talking about. It's basically ah, yeah. <laughs> but actually, it, it's funny. I used to think it was just that one, and I and since I didn't realize that by putting it in the film, and I had been familiar with it for years. Uh, it's a it's a it's an Easter egg of Ben Burt. Uh, he started it for the Star Wars films, and it's a, if you're not familiar, it's a, it's a scream that's in just about everything under the sun. And uh, any major motion picture, it's hidden somewhere in the film. And, um, and then I also decided years ago, after motion picture, um, I ended up joining the elite club of people that put it in their movies, and I didn't realize that. But, <laughs> one, of the things, one of the benefits was is that I, I, I got to hear the recording session, and then I made it my ringtone. So forever I'd hear the Wilhelm. Now I'm thinking that I'm hearing the Wilhelm in some commercial or something else, and then I realize it's just my phone ringing, which is kind of crazy. But, <laughs> but um, the Wilhelm is, is wild. It's actually a series of, of screams. That's why there were some movies where you didn't quite remember, quite know that the Wilhelm was in there. You'd say it wasn't, but then other people said it w- would say it is, and that's because there's different screams. Um, for motion picture, I wanted to put it in the film, but how many, you know, look at the film. There's not that many people screaming, and you're not going to replace Chekhov on the bridge. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a compelling story. So the only place that I could put it, and it is in the director's edition, is right when the, uh, the feedback over the warp core happens, and you see the lightning bolts around the warp core, core uh, cutaway shot there. You hear off in the background, which is how I feel the Wilhelm should always be, <laughs> you know, like somebody just got shot, <laughs> finger in a light socket. Um, my favorite... Uh, one of my favorite Wilhelms in all movies is actually in Return of the Jedi, and that's because um, if you're familiar with that little that other little science fiction franchise, um, <laughs> there's a point where they're in uh, the uh, Han Solo and everybody is in the bunker, and uh, one of the uh, uh, Imperial trooper runs out and says freeze, and then Han Solo throws some explosives at him, and the guy falls backwards over the railing and goes ah. <laughs> That guy is actually is not is not screaming the Wilhelm. What? That guy actually is Ben Burt doing his best Wilhelm imitation. Uh, oh. <laughs> wow! So wow. I love that little. But that's a little in joke. But it's not in motion picture. But. <laughs> Hello so down there. So you definitely did not layer the Wilhelm into uh, Commander Sonak's uh, death cries. No, no, no. Okay. Um, yeah. There were, there were, you know, uh, there were some sounds that 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 were added here and there, and you know, it, it just was. As I said, I think I finished. It was like nails on the chalkboard, and I hope yeah, everybody, yeah. hope everybody, uh, uh, did it work, guys? Did you like the the the, the, the scream? Uh, the the uh, yes. uh, transporter accident seemed frightening now. Well, the original right. version already was. Yeah, 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 but now, yeah. but now, just terrifying. That was my yeah, yeah. So, but it got, it got us a PG, which was part of the point. And I couldn't think of any of the real way to say, "Oh my God, the cloud is coming." <laughs> the other thing that should give it a PG is that astronaut flying away from Beecher as it eats Epsilon Nine. Oh yeah. You mean, you mean where he where he there's yes, a bump and he starts flipping away? Yeah. He sees coming towards us. Um, I'll point out that there's a mistake in there that I intend to fix in the next one. And that's if you look at his uh, his helmet that he's, he's coming towards you. We didn't fix this for the director's edition originally. But as he's coming towards you, that astronaut, there you could see right through his helmet. And the helmet has a flat back where you wouldn't see through it. 
So mm. it was part of the blue screen bleeding through in the shot, and we didn't get it the first time. Hmm. Weird. Wow. Sorry, so when you really see him coming towards us, so. Um, <laughs> and then there's storyboards of, oh, yeah. uh, the things. Here's the interesting things that we cut from the film. See, I told you that even when they were filming the film, they didn't know what effects would be in and what effects would not be in the film. They knew that there was a lot of... Uh, they already knew the problems were happening, but they were still shooting the film. So it was decided that any time anything happened on the bridge, and this goes back to watching the theatrical version, somebody has to state the obvious. So the wormhole, where we have, you know, we're going through the wormhole, which is one of the great original shots where everything's stripping, you know, stripes are, are going away from everybody in the film. When they get out of it, it kind of, in the theatrical version you've seen, kind of has a cut and uh, an explosion happens, but doesn't quite make a lot of sense, and people are shaking, and everything's back to normal, and you kind of understood we something happened, and we somehow got out of it. They shot a torpedo, and that was it. But Chekhov says, we're out of it. Well, thank you. No, it was in there. So in case the effects wouldn't quite establish it, he had to say, we're out of it. You know, half of it. But now, one of the director's edition shots is when the torpedo goes, you get this rear angle of the Enterprise with this big explosion in front of it as the waves dissipate. So it's visually telling that, and therefore you cut the check off later, and he's you know, just exhausted just from what happened. But he doesn't have to say that line. Uh, it's just like the, uh, the, uh, the, the energy ball that V'ger sends to the Enterprise that the first one, which doesn't absorb it like the Klingon cruiser was, Sulu says, the new screen's held. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, we're, we're still here. I mean, understand, it's, it is not out of character for them to say it. It's not a bad line, but the point is, it's not necessary. And, you know, other little changes where it goes into that, is it necessary or is it not? And this is where I say we picked up the pace of the film to keep it compelling, is, come on, Spock is one of the most brilliant people in, in ever, ever known in Starfleet studies all technology, do we really need a minute and a half of the flight suit explaining how to use the thruster pad? Right. You know, then flip the control arms up. No, you, you're, 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 you're a Starfleet officer. You should know how to do this. You should have had some experience with it. So this was part of just distilling down, and this is what would have happened had they had the time, but they also, again, as I said, had that 130-minute requirement that the film not be longer than that and come in right at that point without the credits. That's why it's 131 minutes. By the way. Hmm. But um, it was those little things that just helped keep the movie moving forward. And there, the, the cloud scene is uh, shorter. And the uh, the trip around the Enterprise is uh, a hair shorter because we did all the edits in that piece. And it's funny. Um, uh, my friend Darren Docterman, who, by the way, this director's edition wouldn't happen without Mike Medicino and Darren Docterman. You know, brilliant guys. Mike uh, was with me with with Bob. Uh, he was basically uh, surrogate Bob on the project, doing all the communications with Bob most of the time. <laughs> but well, I just want to throw a shout out to them, of course. Um, but uh, Darren made an interesting has an interesting comment because he says he has a litmus test for people uh, about how much they love. Star Trek in regard to the motion picture, and that when you go to anybody who's seen the motion picture, you ask them, what do you think of the, trip? you know, Scotty and Kirk's trip around the Enterprise? <laughs> As, you know, do you love it or hate it, guys? <laughs> I love you it. Know, I like it because you get to see so much of the Enterprise. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Long scene, Absolutely. And it's got a great piece of music with it, too. Right. Yeah. The litmus yeah. test for yeah. The litmus test where you can tell if anyone is a real Star Trek fan or not is is what he even what he says, and I agree completely, which is ask them what they think of that scene. If they say, God, it took so long, <laughs> this is somebody who doesn't quite get that. That for me, for me, for, for me growing up, it was it was a amazing moment that just made me feel like even because I saw it as a kid, just made me feel like what I'd spent years doing anyway, which is give me an enterprise model and hold it up and just mm -hmm. look at it for hours in different right. angles and just study it from every way that I possibly could. That's what was so special for me as well. So I'm, that's what the trip around the enterprise was. Scotty proud of his work, you know, showing the enterprise and Kirk that, I mean, that one shot that, that Bob suggested about the reflection on the window, 
where Kirk mm-hmm. just is, you know, I'm so thrilled that it's a meme now. It says, I want someone <laughs> to look at me just like Kirk looks at the Enterprise. <laughs> it's, 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 it's in my, it, that is so much in my heart that, that I love it. And it really is a love affair. And I think they've, I think at times that they miss that in other, in other series. You know, look yeah. at Trek three when when uh, I mean they understood that when when Kirk blew up the Enterprise and it's and it's crashing and they're looking up and you know he turns to and says you know my God bones what have I done? He just killed his 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 lover. He just killed the woman mm-hmm. that he loves more than any existing being on the in the world, yeah. and that's powerful. And then you know the most recent Star Trek we had you know the Enterprise was blown up. I didn't quite feel like anybody cared. Yes, you've been in there, it's a ship, it's a vehicle, but it's that emotion which, again, brings back to that human adventure where motion picture is is more real for me than, than any of the other Star Trek films. But that's me, and I'd hope it would be if I was doing this. So. It actually does make a lot of sense. I mean, he is an admiral being shown <laughs> around this new build. But it's his build. It's his yeah. ship. Mm-hmm. It's really his mm-hmm. ship. And... I don't know why, and I, and I never really sat down to try and figure it out, but no other ship in Starfleet has ever, ever, in, in any of Star Trek, made me feel the way the motion picture Enterprise does. Yeah. I actually yeah. asked Mike Akuda a while ago, why didn't it ever show up in any other series? You know, and I said, that it w- you'd think that it would, that they would have it in Next Generation. They would have had it. In, and I think they said it was only, there was one big battle, might have been the Borg battle, from Best of Both Worlds, but that they used it a little because they had to have a ship in there. But I think it was just that there was so much respect for what that was, and he was kind of telling me that everyone just kind of felt that that was something sacred. Hmm. And I appreciate that, and I really do, and uh, without an A. Yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. It was, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a very personal thing, which I, if you know anything about the, the effects, the first, the, 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 when the Enterprise model was constructed, um, they had a pearlescent paint job on it that had some reflectiveness to it. And the problem was is that, and we fixed a lot of this in director's edition, is that on the blue screens, the blue screens would reflect off the surface. So there'd be pieces of it that would disappear. Mm-hmm. The saucer that would kind of disappear. And when you are watching, you'd see big gaping holes where the saucer would change because it, was, it had disappeared in the blue screen. And, but that pearlescent paint looked just gorgeous in ev- just the, the way that everything reflected off of it the right way. And when it got time to do Star Trek II and ILM received the model, they did a flat white so that it didn't have all that reflectiveness and it looked yeah. different. But it wasn't bad, but it looked different. And when we, one of the things we did was we brought the Enterprise model out of storage and brought it up to the effects house because I wanted to make sure that our visual, our model, was uh, indistinguishable between the actual physical model. We wanted our we wanted our CGI effects work that we were doing to convince everybody that we did it with models. And for Christ's sakes, we put dirt in the shots to make mm. everyone believe that they were real. We would have, if something was a particularly dirty spot at that time, we made it dirt so that it would match exactly with the with the, the nearby shots, so that you believe it was on that level. And it had to be that perfect. So when I sent it to the uh, to Foundation Imaging. We studied everything, and I found so many little details of the Enterprise that I had never seen, but the CG model we were using had all those details, and now that model's being updated for you know, use in, in, in the bigger screen, because I want to be able to project this. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'd love to see it happen, that the film makes it into IMAX, and oh, it, should, nice. it should fully stand up to... Oh, yeah. Any yeah, scrutiny at that size, yeah. right? Yeah. But I mean, one, like, like it was, it was now labeled the A and had the different paint job. But we got so excited when we noticed at the rear of the saucer, right next to the the, the strut to the the neck of it, mm-hmm. a bit of the pearlescent paint had started coming through. Mm. We started seeing the original paint job on it. It was just so exciting. And then we noticed that uh, along the saucer on the left side. A little hatch that you can see in the dry dock, it's attached, there's a little hatchway there. That was, the letters were so small, they couldn't put an A on it. So it still said NCC-1701, amazingly <laughs> tiny on the side there. And uh, about the Enterprise, I have stories for everything. But anyway, on the Enterprise, um, they didn't have an A. So I looked co- carefully and I noticed that they actually created the A out of the other letters. The NCC-1701, oh, someone took it and cut them together. 
to have the big A on the ship. And it worked fine, but now it was beginning to show. If you look really close in person, you could see that that was there. And today, you just pull a font and print it. But at that time, when they first introduced the A, they had to do do that with it. It was just really nice. Crazy. So, um, uh, anyone interested in the deleted scenes? Deleted scenes? What's that? Well, there were there were there were a few there were a few few of them. Um, We looked for everything. And uh, we found some things, but we didn't find audio as part of uh, a lot of it. Um, you know, and there's some things that were covered up in the film through dialogue. Uh, if, in case you didn't know, when the when uh, the the Vidra probe is on the bridge, the big light probe, there was a security guard that came in, pulled his phaser, and it first absorbed him, mm-hmm. and then uh, later it absorbs Ilya. Uh, I, I never really found out why they cut it, but I would assume that it's too much of a hostile act that could get the entire enterprise absorbed, if that he actually did a hostile act towards the uh, towards the probe. But the security guard just kind of disappears on the bridge. We we didn't find that footage, but we would look for it now. Another thing was that during the Ilya's uh, 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 tour, uh, or shall we say, the Ilya probe's tour of the bridge. A tour of the Enterprise, they ended up in engineering. And <clears throat> Scotty starts talking about her and basically says that, that you know, he'd throw her in the engine. She's useless. This, this, this horrible thing that was, it was, she was making some negative comment about the Enterprise and Scotty was offended. So he said, yeah, I'll throw her in the engine. But Kirk made an announcement that she heard, you know, about the V'ger uh, entity so that she'd hear it in the, in, in uh, engineering. Anyway, we did find that footage, um, but we'd had no vo- no dialogue at the time. We mm. had no sound, and we didn't find the whole scene. So we decided to uh, to not include it at the time. So, but uh, who knows what's going to happen now with a, with another release? But that was something that was found already. There's a lot wow. more that can be found. Uh, then, of course, there's the memory wall. Yeah. Which um, I love the fact that there are that that is it is the holy grail of Star Trek. Has everybody heard of the memory wall? Everybody Anybody know heard it is? Oh, yeah. Tell us. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> so the memory wall, uh, the effects company that was in there. They were they were going to do a different scene where Spock leaves the Enterprise uh, to go into V'ger and mind meld with with V'ger to figure out everything. And, of course, you bring Doug Trumbull in, and he has a much better idea to let's do a 2001-style spacewalk event that was amazing. Um, but the problem was is that the memory wall, the sets were not very, very... Bob didn't like the sets. They weren't very photographic. You kind of only had two different angles to go through the same set. And... Um, but they had this big scene. And the big scene was that Spock leaves the Enterprise... Okay, has everybody seen the special longer version, the TV version of motion picture? Uh, probably, pretty much right, yes. Yeah, okay. I imagine most of us have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, here's the mind-blowing statement that if you didn't notice, it's one of those things that when, it was, when I learned something that I didn't know after 10 or 20 years, it drives me crazy that I didn't catch it because I'm so detail-oriented. <laughs> Well, the memory wall scene, there is something that survived and is out in one of the versions. The memory wall scene had Kirk follow Spock out in a spacesuit. And uh, the scene of Kirk leaving the Enterprise was actually in the special longer version, where he goes out after him. So that scene was left out of the director's edition. We had it, it was left out is a really good reason, more so than any of the content in the scene, about why we had to leave it out of, going, out of uh, the director's edition. You see, Kirk puts on his spacesuit. He says, I want, I want to go out there and find him. McCoy goes out and in the airlock. It opens, and he floats out. And this is not the reason, but if you go back and look at him in spa- leaving the Enterprise, you'll also notice that there's scaffold here because it's just part of a model. And if you look at the widescreen uh, scenes that were on the director's edition DVD version, that is what a lot of people grew up on because they that was the, the video release. That they had the theatrical first, and then they just put out the special longer version for television. I mean, for uh, on, on videotape as well, for many years. And that's where a lot of other people felt. And it's just, it always feels like something's missing if you don't have all of it. 
so anyway, back to memory wall. So Spock, Kirk, Spock leaves. He's wearing the same spacesuit that Kirk's wearing, but in, in orange. <laughs> uh, and he goes off into V'ger, which has this just this basically a cavern of blue and white lights. And he's going off on his own, and Kirk follows him out there. And Kirk is attacked by little triangular pyramid-style silver balls that all attach to his body and start, you know, like like antibodies come out. And they the, the Enterprise crew calls to Spock to, to come help the captain. And he comes back with his phaser in space and shoots off the, the little triangular things. And both of them proceed into V'ger, where they... This is a, as the script says. And then they, you know, they talk about everything that's about what V'ger is together. Like, it's basically like what Kirk and Spock used to do on TV. They'd beam down somewhere. They'd go on adventure together, leaving everybody behind mm-hmm. and go do... And then Spock does his mind meld with V'ger and, and uh, uh, you know, get back to the film where Spock's in sickbay because it was too much for him to handle. Same thing. But it's a long, it's a long scene that, you know, the rumors forever have been that it was never edited and, you know... Uh, there's been, you know, any shot that ever shows up about it was uh, was something that people went nuts over. Uh, we did find some of it, uh, some some uh, elements of the costumes being moved back and forth down the, the Vija corridor. Those were on the DVD. Those uh, those pieces, and um, um, you know, I would like to see sometime this stuff located and. And uh, I'm sure it would be something fun for people to see. Very cool. And you, and you, and you can't see me smirking. <laughs> Smirks in VR. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, folks, uh, David has been extremely generous with his time. I, I know that we've gone well over our usual hour. Uh, before we kind of wrap it up, any last questions or comments? Um, uh, yes. Wanna, Ken, yeah. Sorry, Ken is in chat and he can't talk, so he's asking, oh. uh, are the master films in 70 millimeter or 35 millimeter? And his second question is, we can answer them both at the same time, um, would the IMAX print be a 70 millimeter equivalent. Ah. Okay, when he says master films, I assume he means the original camera negative. Is that what we'd assume? I mean, yes. I can answer the question so, yeah, anyway yeah. because it's the only thing yeah. that really could be. Yeah. Uh, the film was shot in 35 millimeter, uh, as, as are most films. However, um, the effects plates by Doug Trumbull, <laughs> he shoots in 65 millimeter. The point <laughs> is, is that when you're reducing, you, it's better to have a better uh, starting point. So it's so he has he he shoots sixty five. So there actually never was a seventy millimeter negative of the entire film for Star Trek the Motion Picture, and even at the time they did a thirty five millimeter blow up to seventy millimeter. Um, film stocks have increased have have improved so dramatically over the years that uh, a seventy millimeter print of the past could really uh, look. The same as a 35 millimeter of today, plus we're all digital nowadays. So it really doesn't uh, uh, change that much. But if you see films like Hateful Eight that are shot in 70 millimeter today, they look gorgeous because of the highest resolution. So, no, there, there, as, and in regard to IMAX, there's no, there, there's not a 70 that would be possible even then other than a blow up from the 35 millimeter. So in regard to IMAX, um, IMAX shows 70 millimeter often. Uh, but IMAX also has their own proprietary system that they've used in the past on films like Attack, like Attack of the Clones and other 35-millimeter pictures where they <clears throat> they enlarge uh, the digital master to be uh, ideal for their size screen. But uh, So it really, we would come to them with the uh, DCDM, the digital, the digital master of the film, and have them decide are they going to, if we, if IMAX wants to do it, uh, to the, to then they decide if they want to run it through their system or just run the the, the 4K on the on the big screen. The, the focus is a theatrical Atmos mix, which be awesome because when you're in when you're in spacewalk and there's these big big things that are going over you, you should be able to hear it over you, <laughs> going over your head and everything else. Cool. Any other questions? Anything else? No, I don't. Well, I don't. I don't yeah. give simple questions, simple answers. <laughs> <laughs> but I, well, guys, I hope that everybody understands. <laughs> 
Uh, I, I can't thank our guests enough, uh, David. This has been really enlightening, educational, and uh, I think I told you that uh, the motion picture is one of my personal favorite films. Definitely my favorite Star Trek film. So this is a real uh, a treat to have you here with us, and really thank you to everybody who joined us. It's great to see you all, and thanks for supporting the uh, the Roddenberry events that we do here. More to come, as always, and I'd love to invite David back uh, sometime, of course. So uh, we'll try to make this happen again. You got to get more use out of the virtual medallion. So uh, totally. Let me yeah. let me let me close with something. Yeah. Please, please have the uh, keep the faith. Um, I told you, and I've said it here before. I've promised Robert Wise it's going to be on film, it's going to, or at least the film level, 4K master. It's going to reach that level. I'm going to keep my promise. So, and the studio is being great. But the point is, there's so many people who believe after all this time that it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. I want to have it happen soon. <laughs> there we go. So keep all the right. faith and tell people have faith. Yeah. yeah. Tweet about it. Something's going to happen. Yeah. You guys need a T-shirt. <laughs> yes. There you go. All right. Just well, cool. Yeah. T-shirt, medallion, and, and pins. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. All right. Thanks, thanks everybody. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Have a great Thank night. You. We'll do it again. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Have a great Christmas. Yeah. podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network